And now we're going to have our second reading um, from John 20, and it's on page 8 of your zines. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good afternoon. It is great to be with you. Happy Easter. My name is Rowan. Uh, I am now the assistant minister at Garrison Church, which is, for those confused who may not have been here last week, I was the interim uh, minister here, but you've kept me. Thank you. Uh, We're going to open God's Word today from John 20, so um, I'll be referring to each of those readings, so keep them open with you. Uh, But I wanted to just start by uh, asking you about the beginning of this week. As you look down the barrel of this week, you knew that you had a four-day weekend ahead of you. And how does that that future make you feel? Um, I was talking to to someone the other day about they were about to go on a holiday, and we we talked about that feeling you have before you go on a holiday. It's like the holiday before the holiday feeling. The, The future, as it were, reaches back into the present, and it gives you a little skip in your step. Uh, and in a way, as we look at the resurrection, what, we, what we're getting is, is a glimpse of the future, a future that is so good, and it reaches back into the present, and it means that with a hope that we have, we can be joyful and assured in this life. There will be sufferings, it will be hard, it will require perseverance, But so certain is that future, so good is that future, that it reaches back into the present and shapes how we see the world. That's what I want to focus on on today, because the reality is we live in unsettling times. If we look to the future, there is actually a lot of uncertainty politically. If you just observe Brexit, 
You look at the current global leadership, it seems precarious. Environmentally, as we look at the effects of climate change, as things are projected about what our world will be like in the next 50 years and beyond, for our future generations, it looks precarious. Economically, uh, we are, if I squeeze in as a millennial, 81, maybe just, but we are the first generation where we will be, it's said, worse off economically than our parents. And then if you think about technology, there's been many articles about artificial intelligence, AI, and, and the effects that that will have both on the workforce and communities uh, and other things in the future. There's all these things which mean that as we look to the future, if those things are reaching back, we can, you can see why our world, and, and often we feel, rather than joyful and having a skip in our step, we feel anxious, don't we? We feel marked by conflict. We, we feel a sense of hopelessness. And that's why today, Easter Sunday, is such a marvellous day, because we focus on the future, and that future reaches back into the present and fills us with hope and assurance the future controls how we view the present. But the reality is, too, we, we live individual lives, don't we? Each of us has our own story. And so perhaps as you look forward, your own future or the circumstances that you're facing in the present, you're finding it tough, and you might not feel like you're marked by hope, but rather you might feel anxious and hopeless. Well, I hope that this is a word of encouragement to you this afternoon. So today is Easter Day, where in the church calendar, with the church through the ages, as we've just declared, we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And I want to put it to you today that the resurrection resources us unlike anything else with a, with a future hope. But in order for us to have that hope, we need to be confident that it's true. See, hope isn't some kind of wishful thinking. Hope needs to be based in substance. And the reality is, particularly in the face of objections, and Christianity has many objectors, principle amongst them is the resurrection. Dead people don't rise from the dead. And so, as part of our, our looking at this passage this afternoon, I think we need to address that. Did, did Jesus rise? Is it reasonable to believe such a thing? Do you believe it? Do you have your doubts? If you do have your doubts, be comforted that you're in good company because in the pages of the Bible and in the passage we read today, there are those who didn't believe at first. The disciples, Mary even, and Thomas. Well, if we were to look at the common objections to the resurrection, the principle amongst them is, is the claims that the disciples made that Jesus rose from the dead. And people say, well, that can't be true, either because the disciples, they must have, they must have been desperate or they must have been gullible or, or deceived. And there are three reasons why what they believe is not true about the resurrection. But I think each of those is addressed in this passage today to show that the resurrection, even in this account, is, is reasonable. And we're just going to start there to build some groundwork before moving on to thinking about how this impacts us so firstly, did the resurrection faith arise 
because the first Christians were desperate. Christianity is, is often called a crutch. Faith is for the weak. It is argued that the early believers, as indeed believers like you and me today, are needy. And so we, we needed a narrative of some kind to help us cope with life. So they needed Jesus' resurrection to be true so as to cope with life. Now, it's certainly true that the Christian faith does resource us for hope in life and help us. But that's not to say that the first Christians merely had an emotional or psychological reasons for believing that that was true. See, not only did these early believers want it to be true, but maybe the argument goes they, they kind of thought it to be true, they kind of wished it into existence like a Freudian wish fulfillment because they were desperate. Well, how does this passage today speak into, into that accusation? Well, the picture we get here is slightly different. That's not the picture we get that they were desperate. If you were to read through John's Gospel, you'd see that Jesus again and again says that he's going to rise from the dead on the third day. You see it in John 2. So that was the expectation that Jesus had presented, but that's not the expectation, evidently, the disciples had. See, you would think that they would have been up all night anticipating Jesus' resurrection. Yet, despite this, Mary Magdalene comes to Jesus' tomb. She sees the stone is rolled away, and what does she do? Well, she immediately runs back to say, someone has taken our Lord. We don't know where they've put him, in verse 2. So Mary, as the other disciples, would have heard Jesus' prediction about the resurrection as much as anyone else. But when she comes to the empty tomb, her first reaction is to think that, that someone had taken him. She didn't sit there thinking, oh, he said he would rise, could it possibly be? It didn't even seem to occur to her. In fact, resurrection it wasn't the expectation at that time. In the Greco-Roman world, the body was, was disdained, so they had no... Um, place for resurrection in, in their thought world. In the Jewish faith, they did believe in the resurrection of the body, but that was to happen at the end of time, not in the midst of history. So no one was desperate to believe this, to make it up. In fact, from this story, no one even ex expected it. So did the resurrection faith arise because the first Christians were desperate? Well, it doesn't seem so. The first Christians were not expecting Jesus to rise. Secondly, did the resurrection faith arise because the first Christians were gullible? Many people say that faith is believing something despite reason. But here we see a different picture as Peter and the disciples enter the tomb. If you look at verse 6, it says, He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. What we see here is not someone with, with blind faith or he's gullible. Rather, knowing that this is not what the disciples expected, Peter adopts reason to try and make sense of what's happening. In verse 6 to 8, it says that he saw. That word means to think, to process, to ponder. He's trying to put the pieces together about what is happening. But if friends had taken the body, why would have they have kept the grave clothes. If enemies were doing it, why would have they taken off the clothes and put them there nice and neat in a pile? He was looking hard at the evidence. Did the resurrection faith arise because the first Christians were gullible? Well, it doesn't seem so, because Peter adopts 
reason and his senses to explore the evidence before believing. Of the disciple John, it says he saw and believed. Thirdly, did, did the resurrection faith arise because the first Christians were, were deceptive? And this is interesting because in, in this account, what we see is the first witness to the empty tomb was, was Mary. At that time, a woman's testimony was only worth half of that of a man in the Jewish court and worth nothing in the mind of, of the Roman world. Tragically so, but... but that, that was the reality of the world. And so if you were to write an account, you would not put the, the woman as a first person who appeared as a witness to the resurrected Jesus. And what's more, Mary will go on to fail to recognize him. She would, she would fail the first question put to a witness in court. Do you, do you recognize this person? For many historians, these, these scandals actually make the resurrection more coherent and believable because why on earth... Would you say it like this? Otherwise, anyone merely inventing the story would have told it differently. Did the resurrection faith arise because the first Christians were deceptive? Well, no, it doesn't seem so. The first Christians would have invented a story, would not have invented a story with a woman as a first eyewitness. So even within this account, you can see that the resurrection is, is reasonable. It's believable, as it were. There's much more to say, and that there is much good literature written on it, but the resurrection is, is reasonable. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we then follow it, does it? I remember a few years ago we did a Christianity Explored course with a bunch of students, and uh, at the end of that course, the duration of that course, there is three statements that are made, and they need to uh, indicate what they think in terms of unlikely to likely, naught to ten about these various statements. And the first two statements, it was, do you think that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? We'd been looking at Mark's Gospel, and most of them reasonably persuaded from reading a Gospel themselves that, yes, yes, Jesus was the Son of God. Do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? And again, overwhelmingly, people were like, yeah, I, I'm, I'm persuaded that that's credible, that that's reasonable. And then how likely it was that they would follow him, that's where they expressed a real honesty and just said, no. See, belief, and just because something is reasonable, doesn't mean that we will then follow it. But it's not less than reasonable. Even within these pages of Scripture, we see that the resurrection is, is reasonable. But we need more than that. We need to know why it's significant. And why is the resurrection significant? Well, as we said at the beginning, it's because it gives us a glimpse into our future. See, the Bible tells the story of the world. We've been looking at Genesis. There we see a good God creates a good world and creates humanity to commune in relationship with him. That's the introduction to the story, as it were. But the problem arises. An intruder, an enemy is introduced in sin as humanity turns away from God and death is introduced. Death in our world is, is explained as a natural thing, that we, we just somehow cease to exist. I don't know if you've watched the Ricky Gervais show, Afterlife, but that's the, the principal philosophy behind that is that this is all there is, so 
make good of what you can and, and get on with it. And many writers and artists have even tried to find some beauty in this sense of we just cease to exist, this is our time here. But I don't know if you've ever experienced death because it, it feels nothing of the sort. In the face of death, the last thing it feels like is, is natural. In John's Gospel, when Jesus goes to, to visit Lazarus and he encounters him dead, even though he knows that he will raise him, what does he do? He weeps. Why? Because death is this intruder on creation. This is not the way it's meant to be. And on Good Friday, we remember that the resolution to that problem comes with the death of our Lord Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God, came down, took on flesh. He walked and felt as we do, but was innocent. And as our champion, he took on that great intruder death, that great enemy. And at first sight, it looks like it was lost. He dies on a cross. Yet we know that death has no right or hold on him. And he overcame that enemy of death by rising from the dead. And that's what we celebrate today. As our champion, he is victorious over death. And when we are in him, when we trust in him, his victory becomes ours. Death with its power over humanity is overcome. We're given a glimpse of the future. The resurrection gives us a glimpse of how things will be in the end. Jesus' resurrection is a picture of what will happen in the future for those that are in him. Just as death has no power over Jesus, because he rises from the dead, so in Jesus, at death, the believer will rise with him and death will have no power over them. This is the good news of Easter Day. But the story of the Bible goes beyond that because the scope of God's triumph work triumphant work in, in the resurrection is just beyond personal salvation, but it includes all of creation itself. So all that is broken in this world will be undone. It's nothing less than the restoration and eradication of all that has damaged this world. That's the picture of the future that we're given in Revelation 21 and 22, the end of the story. Yet we live in the intervening years, don't we? And so how does that future shape our life in the present? How does Jesus' resurrection and the future shape our lives in the present? Well, we see that it gives us great hope and resources us with assurance in the midst of our present circumstances. Well, how will we respond to this? Well, the resurrection means that we can live three things, humble, helpful, and hopeful lives. Firstly, the resurrection life means that we can live humble lives. We, we experienced hope, that is salvation, not through anything that we had, by anything that we had done, but by the work of the Lord Jesus. It was God's gift, and he took the initiative to save us through his son. And it's interesting in, in this story, I don't know if you noticed when he, he um, interacts with Mary, did you notice how tender he was with her? He leads her from this state of confusion. She's anxious, she's perplexed, she's, she's upset. And he leads her 
to understanding through, through gentle questioning. And then he simply calls her by name. He takes the initiative. He calls her by name, Mary. It's almost a beautiful picture of what John earlier in the Gospel says the good shepherd does. He calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. Mary here is frantically running around looking for the wrong Jesus. She's looking for the dead Jesus. But she won't find him. Before the risen Jesus meets her and finds her, he calls her by name. Salvation is not our achievement. It is gifted to us by God and he initiates a relationship with us through his son like he did with Mary. Then we also see the picture of, of, doubt, of, of a doubting disciple as well in the picture of Thomas. Thomas, for him, proof is in the pudding. He wants, he wants hands in the wounds. He's a doubter. Quite literally, the text reads, if I do not see and put my finger in, I will never believe. But we're told later in the account that when they're all in the house again, the doors are shut and bolted as before, Thomas present, Jesus comes and greets them. And notice he doesn't, doesn't scold Thomas, but he, he invites him. Jesus extended his hands and invited Thomas to use his sense of touch as well as his sight. Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. And Jesus extends a further invitation. Stop doubting and believe. Jesus has achieved what is necessary to overcome death and have a relationship with our God, but he has also invited us into that relationship. How are we to respond? Well, Thomas's response is how we should respond, in humility. He says, my Lord and my God. So the resurrection life is, is humble. It's recognizing that we don't achieve it, but our future hope is secured for us because of our Lord Jesus, and he takes the initiative to call us by name. Secondly, resurrection life is, is hopeful. Think back to that feeling, that pre-holiday holiday feeling. It enables us to live in the present with, it, with a sense of joy, knowing that something awaits us. We live in a world where hopelessness is, is around us, but the future joy and of what is promised, that the glimpse that we get in Jesus' resurrection injects life now in the presence with hope. And it's a hope that is guaranteed because Jesus has risen from the dead. Hopelessness is encountered when we don't know what the future holds. And in our intervening years between now when, when Christ calls us home or he returns, we don't know what is going to happen. And that could be the cause of, of great anxiety for us. We cannot write the story of our future intervening years before that. But we don't have to, because we have a view of the end that can give us hope each day. Jesus is risen from the dead. That is our future hope. The Apostle Paul speaks of it being the first fruits of a future harvest, so we look to Jesus, the risen Lord Jesus, and we know that that is our secure future. And it's a hope that reaches, reaches back into the present and means that we can live this life 
in great hopeful assurance that that is secured. Final victory over sin and death is assured. But it goes beyond that hope, doesn't it? One author puts it this way, our assurance of what we don't yet have produces in us in a change, our future affects us now. We experience difficulty and don't give up. We can experience pleasure and not become addicted to it. We can live free from the paralyzing regret over past mistakes and missed opportunities. Do you see how that wonderful picture of the future reaches into the present and can even change us in the midst of our lives right now, injecting them with hope? And finally, the resurrection life can mean that we can be helpful. Knowing the future doesn't make us passive. Rather, hope means that we are restless for more and better here and now. As God fills us, his people with his spirit, we can seek to change the present broken world wherever and whenever we're able to, since we've been given a glimpse of the future. The future reaches back into now, and it doesn't mean that we just sit on our hands, but rather, wherever and whenever we can, by the God's spirit, we seek to change the present broken world. We seek to give people a glimpse of that future. Easter is about hope rising. The future controls how we view the present. But on Easter Day, we celebrate the resurrection. And the resurrection means that we can live humble, hopeful, and helpful lives until Christ comes or calls us home. Let's pray that the Spirit might be at work within us to help us do that. Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus. We thank you that he willingly came down from heaven, lived the life that we could not, died the death that we deserved, but then gave us all the fruits of his merits and rewards. We thank you that in him, as he raised, was raised from the dead, victorious, we too in him are raised above sin and death, that they no longer have hold over us, but rather our future is secured where Christ is in heaven. And we praise you for that. We pray that by your spirit that that might mean that we now live lives of hope, that we might be people who declare hope to others, that we might be humble, recognizing that we don't deserve this, but this was all your work graciously for us, and that we might be helpful, that wherever and whenever we can, by your Spirit, that you might help us to work in this present broken world for others' good and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.